We're now into our time of hearing God's word, and we're going to have Pastor Bill preach Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. The sermon is entitled, Living in an Ever-Changing World. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on his back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our study in the book of Daniel today, and we have made our way to chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is a pivot point in the book. It's a vision 
And so it shares more in common with the last six chapters of the book. Those are mostly visions. It shares more in common with those than does with the first six chapters, which are the narrative accounts of the book. So content-wise, it fits a little bit better with the back end of the book. But it shares the language that the first part of the book is written in. Now, you may not realize this, but the book of Daniel is bilingual. It's written in both Hebrew and Aramaic, and so I want to take an aside already to think about that for just a moment, because it's one book of Scripture written in two languages. That tells you something about how God sees his people, how he sees the church, that he does not intend faith to be tied to any one culture or any one ethnicity, but that he expects people of many different cultures to share in one faith, without flattening any of our cultural distinctives and without relativizing our one faith. That's a very hard combination to pull off, to adopt one faith regardless of what our cultural background is, to receive this one faith that, as Jude puts it, was delivered once for all to the saints, or as Paul says in the Ephesians, that was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. One faith, and yet this one faith values multiple distinctive cultures. It doesn't insist that we lose our cultural backgrounds in order to embrace this one faith. You see that clearly in the New Testament when, when Jews and Gentiles both embrace this one faith, and yet they do so while retaining their cultural Jewishness and their cultural Gentileness. And so they end up bringing both of their cultural backgrounds into the church, which makes the church richer, more diverse than it was before, makes it better. You see that same pattern, that same combining of diversity here in the Old Testament. Because in order to read the book of Daniel as it was originally written, you have to be conversant with two different cultures which means that you would have to extend yourself, regardless of which one of those you were more familiar with, you would have to extend yourself, you would have to grow to understand multiple cultures in order to understand all that God has for his people. That's been God's intention all along. You hear that uh, when he first talks to Abraham, and you can hear the hints when he says, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to many nations. God's plan from that point on, from all of, all of eternity was that this one faith would be lived out and expressed in a plurality of cultures. One faith valuing a diversity of backgrounds while uniting all of those backgrounds, while bringing them together. Until on that last day, there stand before God a multitude of people from every tribe, from every language, from every nation, not flattened so that they all look, speak, and sound the same, but brought together in their common love for him and their love for each other. It's what the human race is supposed to be before we were cut off from God and then isolated from each other. The book of Daniel hints at that larger plan in the way that it's written in two different languages. And those two different languages and the way that they're positioned in the book make you realize that chapter 7 has a special place in the book. It is a vis vision, so it does fit better in the last half of the book with the other visions. But because it's written in Aramaic, it fits better with the first half. And so it functions as a pivot between the first half and the last half. So what is it doing there as a pivot? What is its function? 
It's a vision that provides a summary of the themes that you find in the first six chapters. It's a summary that brings together all of those earlier themes, but it's also the fullest expression of those themes, the full flowering, the fruit of the smaller things that we've glimpsed earlier. It's a summary of human history, of God's interactions with history, of where his people fit into all of history. And so as a summary of history, it provides a synopsis of what we've already been studying, but it also provides then an interpretive grid, a set of lenses, a pair of glasses that allow us then to understand the rest of the visions. Daniel's going to have other visions that uh, look at human history, and this synopsis provides a way of understanding those visions. But it also helps you and me as we interpret the world that we live in, as we look at the history that we are presently part of. And here you have to remember the point of the book. It's written to God's people whom he has spread throughout the world. Spread throughout nations that we've already learned are in constant upheaval. One replaces another after another after another. They're marked by violence. They're marked by power struggles. They produce an unfair, unjust world. And God does what? He throws us in. He throws his people in this diverse group that he's brought, brought together right into the middle of all of that. And he does so for a purpose, gives us a mission so that we can show a broken world what it is to know him. Now, when you're facing that reality, being thrown into the middle of all these powerful nations, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed, to feel small. And so you just pull back from that larger frightening world. Or you might decide to fight fire with fire, adopt the power tactics of whichever nation you're part of, or you could just become apathetic. You say to yourself, you say to the people around you, this is just the way the world is. It's always been this way. It's always going to keep being this way. There's nothing you can do about it. Fear, fight, apathy. Three common responses to this larger world. Very understandable, but three responses that will keep you from what God has called you to. And that's why he gives you chapter seven. It's to motivate you to a different kind of interaction and involvement with the world. One where you are all in like Daniel was. Where you serve your society, you make it better than it was before without compromising your faith, regardless of the cost. And chapter seven helps motivate you to do that, to be that kind of a person by showing you three things that we'll take a look at today. First, it shows you what is happening in human history. Second, it shows you why that's happening. And third, it shows how it's happening. Or to say it a little bit differently, it gives you the big picture of history, the purpose of human history, and the means by which that purpose is accomplished. It gives you the what, the why, and the how of human history so that you can enter in and take your place alongside this son of man that you see in chapter seven. So first, what's happening? What's the big picture of human history? The first thing you notice in Daniel seven is that history is not a random succession of one influential nation just following another. Instead, history is intentionally moved forward by God. History does not change itself. God changes it. First picture that you get there is that the beasts in verse 2 rise up out of the great sea. We need to talk about that picture a little bit. It's a strange picture for us. 
When the Israelites heard it, however, they would have seen it as a threatening picture. The sea in the ancient Near Eastern mindset was a picture of the spiritual forces of chaos and evil, the forces that set themselves up against the the order, the beauty, the goodness of creation. And so the sea represented the force that opposed the gods, that worked to ruin what they made, that actively fought against them. And the Old Testament will often pick up this imagery, not because it's adopting the cosmology or the theologies of the surrounding nations, but because the image was well understood, the Old Testament will use this image to highlight God's superiority and his power over evil. For instance, Tremper Longman, an Old Testament professor, points out passages where, quote, God blasts the sea with his rebuke in Psalm 18. He sets a guard over the sea in Job 7, Jeremiah 5. He causes the sea to dry up, Nahum chapter 1. He treads on the sea, Habakkuk 3, and he fights the sea monsters in Isaiah 27, end quote. In other words, God always triumphs over evil. But he does so because there's always evil to triumph over. And that evil can be personified by calling it the sea. So now here in Daniel chapter 7, we have beasts rising from the sea, creatures rising from the source that opposes God and what he desires. And as you watch these beasts come up out of the sea, these beasts that you learn later in verse 17 are kings, what you're watching are the representatives of the nations that are not in line with God, kings who oppose God. And you can see how ungodly they are by looking at them you realize that they are distortions of what God makes. The first one, a lion with eagle's wings. Sounds kind of odd to us, might even sound kind of cool. The first thing an Israelite would have thought was, that's not odd and definitely not cool. That's unholy. It's unclean. It doesn't belong in the land because it has wings. It doesn't belong in the air because it's an animal, not a bird. It's kind of in both realms, air and land, at the same time. And speaking as an Israelite, we as God's people have been told we can touch things, we can eat things that fully belong in their own domain, their own realm, their own environment. Those are clean. But when a creature straddles the two, we've been taught to see them as unclean. And so a winged lion would have have been something that made the Jews think that's unclean, that's unholy, there's something wrong with it. Something so wrong you want to get away from it so that its unholiness does not rub off on you. Or next, you see a lopsided bear. Again, something not quite right with it. It's raised up on one side. It's lopsided. Or you see a leopard with wings, way too many heads. And again, you're thinking unclean here. Or that fourth beast that is so beastly, there's no way to even describe what it's like, has ten horns and iron teeth. You're seeing beast after beast after beast after beast that are each defiled, that come from a world of chaos, that are opposed to God and his purposes. These are pictures of what? Of rebellion and revulsion, both of those at the same time. But here's the surprise. They don't bring themselves to power. God does. Verse 2, heaven has a hand in this. It stirs up the sea. And in some way, heaven brings these revolting rebellious beasts into history. 
But heaven does even more than that. After these beasts have arrived, they're not autonomous actors that can now do whatever they want. Instead, things are done to them. Wings are ripped off of the first one. It's lifted up. Something else is acting on it. The second is told, go eat more. It's told what to do by someone else. The third is given authority to rule. It doesn't have authority on its own. And the fourth has limits placed on it, very severe limits. It's killed, it's destroyed. The beasts do not create themselves and they don't rule themselves. Something else does. They're subject to the ancient of days. He's the one in charge. He raises them up, he gives them authority, he replaces them. The world changes. History changes, but not on its own. It changes because God changes it without excuse, without apology. He's clearly and completely in charge. Now, I need to say a word about what we're reading. This is a special kind of writing. It's a genre that's called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature starts by painting a picture of impending doom. Like the whole world is about, uh, is about to spin out of control. But apocalyptic literature ends with optimism. You could call it joy. It says, even though things look pretty bad right now, just hang on. Because everything's going to turn out okay. The way apocalyptic literature does this is it paints pictures for you that you're supposed to realize are not exactly real. They're accurate. They tell you true things about the world, about the Lord. But if you press the details too strongly, if you're looking for a one-to-one -one correspondence to the real world, you will mess up the picture. You'll distort what it's trying to show you. For instance, the Ancient of Days in verse 9 is clearly God. But he's pictured on a throne with white hair. That does not mean that God is an old man who has to sit down somewhere. What is God? God's an ageless spirit. God is everywhere at once. He's not confined to a single location. So you're not supposed to read this and think, okay, this is exactly what God looks like. When I get to heaven, when I see him, he's going to have white hair and be kind of oldish. He'll be sitting down. Instead, you're supposed to realize, no, those things are symbols that tell you things that are true about him. So you see the white hair and you think, okay, what, what's that telling me? It's telling me that he's wise. It's also telling me that he's pure. He's holy. Throne, what's that telling me? He's the great king. He's over everything else. He has the power to judge evil. Also, he's ready to judge right now. In other words, the details of the picture do not physically map onto the details of God. When you see him, don't expect him to be old sitting down with white hair. He might be, but he doesn't have to. Those are parts of the picture that are not necessarily part of God. But when you see him, you should expect him to be holy, pure, wise, and ready to judge. In other words, apocalyptic literature brings together different picture elements to give you insight in reality, to give you this interpretive grid we've been talking about that you can look through at the larger world in order to understand it. If you use this kind of literature wrong, however, if you press the details too hard, the picture dissolves, it disappears, and you end up missing the point. Now here's why this is important. It's really tempting 
to look at each beast as they come up out of the sea and think to yourself, I wonder which king, I wonder which kingdom this beast represents. It's not what this kind of literature is trying to tell you, but people have treated it as prophecy more than they've treated it as apocalyptic. And so they've tried to answer which kingdom and king is this beast. So they notice what happens to the first one. It's humbled and then raised up. It's given the mind of a man. And they say, you know, that sounds a lot like what just happened to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. He lost his mind, went around like a beast, and then was restored. So the first beast, that represents Babylon. Now, what's the second? And immediately you run into a problem. You don't have a lot of information about the next beast. And so you have to guess, which nation does this one represent? Only if you go down this road, there are a couple good options, depending on whether you count the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians as one kingdom or two, which then puts you into a debate you can't resolve from the text. It's ambiguous. It could be either. Third beast comes along, and again, you have some information that people try to make fit into what we know of history, but again, there are a couple good options here. Is this Greece? Is it Persia? You don't know. It's not clear from the text. Then the fourth beast comes along. It has absolutely no description that you can hang any hooks on. It's got a lot of confusing imagery, like the ten horns that are on its head. If you read verse 24, you learn these horns are individual kings, which only confuses you more because verse 17 told you that each beast is a king. So now this king has ten kings on his head, and you start to think, okay, well, maybe those are rulers of a kingdom. Then people try to figure out which king is the little horn that pushes three of the other horns out. And even if you have a guess, which at this point is all you're doing, you're guessing, you still have a problem. Verse 26 tells you that the little horn gets judged, that his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And immediately after that, verse 27, all the nations on earth are handed over to the holy people, which hasn't happened yet. Nations have not been handed over to the holy people. The kingdom of God is not fully here. That means that you cannot identify who this king is until what? Until he's judged. So if you read this as prophecy, it tells you nothing useful. You can't figure out who these nations are or who this little horn is. There's no way then for you to respond. There's nothing for you to do. Read it the wrong way, and you end up in a confusing dead end with no application to your life. And that happens because that's not what apocalyptic literature is trying to tell you. You have not been handed a puzzle to try to figure out which kingdom is which. Instead, you've been given an interpretive grid to help you make sense of human history. You've been given the big picture, the pattern of human history. That one beastly evil kingdom follows another on earth, each with their own rebellious revolting elements that hurt the people over whom they rule. And that's why the Apostle John, when he writes the book of Revelation, which is also in the apocalyptic style, takes the beasts of Daniel 7 and he combines them into one colossal super beast in chapter 13. I'm going to pick up at the very last bit of chapter 12 here. And John writes, And the dragon, that's a picture of Satan that he's already talked about, and the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. Again, there's that source of evil and chaos. The dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea 
with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, look at what John just did. The beast in Revelation has elements of each one of the four beasts from Daniel just listed in reverse order. It has the ten horns of the fourth beast. It has the leopard resemblance of the third, the bear-like feet of the second, and the lion mouth of the first. What did John just do? He realized these four beasts in Daniel are not separate kingdoms or nations that you're supposed to identify which one is which. Instead, they can be brought together into a single composite picture that describes the general characteristics of human kingdoms. You're not meant to read Daniel and identify specific chapters of history in this chapter and, and ask, is this nation a leopard? Is it a bear? Instead, you're given a summary of all of history as one nation comes after another, after another, after another, after another. And that from God's perspective, they're all completely revolting. They're beasts that gorge themselves. They never have enough. They exert power and influence over the whole earth, but not for good. Instead, they are all building up to that expression of the fourth beast, verse 23. The one that will devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. The one, verse 25, that is led by a king who will speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, which means, verse 21, that he made war with the saints and prevailed against them. This is what the nations are like. They crush, they devour, they trample. They speak and war against the Most High and against his people, and at times they're able to defeat God's holy people. Which means what? Why would you do that? Why would you fight against God's people? Well, that only makes sense if the holy people live in a way that is out of step with the beast nation, the one that is currently devouring the whole world. You don't make war on people who work with you, who help you accomplish your agenda. You only fight those who oppose you and who get in your way. So when the little horn fights against the holy people, it's because they have a different agenda from devouring, crushing, and trampling. They live within one of these earthly kingdoms, but they have very different values. They live as part of the kingdom that is coming, the one that's never going to fail, the kingdom that is not identified with any of the beast kingdoms. But because that's where their primary citizenship is, it brings them into conflict with the world around them. We've already seen how the beast kingdoms fight against God's people. That in chapter 3, Daniel's friends are thrown into a blazing furnace because they will not worship the beast king. Or in chapter 6, when Daniel is thrown into a pit full of lions, we see that beast king take one of God's holy people and throw him to the beasts. And God says unapologetically in chapter 7, I set that king up. And I'll set up the next one as well. And the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that knowing full well that they will not build a kingdom on earth that is like the one that I have in heaven, knowing full well that they will attack my people. Brothers and sisters, if you live out this ancient of days kingdom values, if you live wanting to see God's kingdom affect your world, count on being fought against. 
It's not a question of if, but when. Sometimes God will rescue you, like he did with Daniel and his friends. Sometimes he won't. Sometimes the nations defeat the holy people. And when that happens, God says he has a hand in it. Now, if you're one of God's people this morning, you think, why? (laughs) What good reason is there for setting up kingdom after kingdom after kingdom that oppose you, Lord, and that hurt your people? Which brings us to point two. What is God's purpose here? Why is he moving history in this way? It's because in some way, it's all necessary to bring his kingdom. God sees, oversees all of human history. He himself never sins, but he uses the sinfulness of human history in order to bring about the kingdom that he loves. And there's a day coming when his people will inherit his kingdom. They're going to rule with him over this earth. And because that's what's really going to happen one day in the future, then that has to percolate back into your present, my present, and shape and control what we do right now. And so each day you need to get up out of bed and ask, what is God doing today in my world? What's he doing in my home? What's he doing at work? What's he doing at school? What's he doing in my nation to bring his kingdom on this earth? I know that he is doing something. What is it that he's doing and how do I get involved? Even if that means that the little horn king is going to fight against me. By giving us chapter 7, God is teaching his people to look forward with optimism to look forward with his agenda in mind, to learn to say the best day is yet to come. The day when God judges this world, ushers in his kingdom. But what I know is that he's involved right now in order to bring that day, regardless of what happens in the beast kingdom in which I live. So what can I do now to work with him? Or at least that's what you should be thinking. Many of us struggle We think and do things to make life more like what we want it to be here without thinking about what it is that God might be doing. A number of years ago, like six or so, something like that, I was talking with a woman. She was really concerned about what was the then upcoming presidential election. She thought the outcome was really critical. And as we talked, it seemed to me that she did not have the big picture in mind that we're talking about today putting way too much emphasis on who got elected and I think doing so for all the wrong reasons. So I said to her, okay, let's grant that your person is the best person. I'll give you that. And let's grant that they can deliver everything that you want from them. I'll give you that too. That they can reshape the country exactly the way that you think it should be. I'll give you all of that. So if they got elected and they did everything that you wanted them to do, How would that outcome help advance the kingdom of God? She kind of stumbled around a little bit. She said, well, uh, it'd be a nicer world to live in. It'd be more moral, more safe. I said, okay, I'll give you all of that. I think, by the way, that's debatable, but we'll set that to the side for the moment. He said, if the world was gentler, kinder, safer, all the same things that I want out of this world. If it was all of that, how will that be helpful for God's kingdom? She didn't have an answer because that's not the way she was thinking. 
the impact on the kingdom of God from what she did or didn't do, that just was not on her radar. Now, I was very gentle with her. I was not harsh with her that day. I want to be very clear, however, today. That is not a Christian way of thinking. It's not a Christian way of thinking because it's not a Christian kingdom way of living. It's a focus on the kingdoms of this world, not a focus on the kingdom of God. It's a focus, let me be provocative, that says, let's figure out how to tame the beast kingdom rather than let's figure out how to work with God for the kingdom that's going to replace every beast kingdom. Let me be more provocative. Frankly, I didn't care who she voted for. Why is that? Because what I cared about is that for her, she didn't see how her vote was connected to God's coming kingdom. The kingdom that only comes fully after he judges all the others. Now, we'll throw in the caveat. Does that mean that your vote doesn't matter? Of course it matters. Christians are not apathetic about what goes on in this world. But do not confuse God's kingdom with the one that you're voting for. They're not the same. I'm very grateful to live in this country. There are many advantages to living here, despite all of the problems that we have. This country makes a lot less war on God's people than some other countries do. But if you think that it makes no war, or that it could not one day make a lot of war, or if you think now that it's pretty close to the kingdom of God, or that it could be, you're missing the point of Daniel 7. And you're missing the point of Revelation 13. Which means that you're missing what God is doing as he changes history by raising up one beast after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. And if you're content with merely trying to tame the beast of the day, then please hear this. You're missing something important about God's agenda. He's not interested in a little moral reformation, a little societal rehabilitation that has its place. We gave an entire sermon a couple of months ago to Jeremiah 29, talking about how you are to work for the good of your society, to pray for the peace of your society. That has its place. But God has a much bigger goal in mind. He aims at nothing less. He's committed to nothing less. He's invested in nothing less than complete and total transformation. That's point three. This is the means by which God accomplishes his purpose of bringing his kingdom to this world. He is sold out to transforming people so that they no longer resemble beasts. Don't miss the major contrast in this passage. On the one side are the beasts. They're unclean, creatures that have talking horns with eyes, things that have no place in God's creation. On the other side, you have the Ancient of Days. He wears clothes, has hair, sits on a throne. He has what you would call human traits. With him is one who's like a son of man, who's given an everlasting kingdom, one that will never be replaced by any other kingdom. The son of man is not like any of the beasts. He's a true human. He's a real image of God. And with him are the holy people of the Most High who reign in his kingdom with him. In other words, you have God and images of God on one side and non-images of God on the other. And there's no overlap between the two. No common ground that they share. You cannot tame the one group so that they will coexist with the other. What there is, however, 
is transformation. It is possible to go from one side to the other, not because you are physically relocated, but because you now belong to the other kingdom. Remember what happens to the first beast? Something tears off its wings, and you realize it's no longer unclean. Then that something lifts it up, and now it looks like hum it's human. Then the mind of a human is given to it. It's no longer a beast. Its beastliness is removed, and something is given to it that it did not have before, so that it is no longer what it was. It's now something different. It's been transformed. It no longer belongs to the kingdom of the beasts. That's what God is doing. He's not taming beast kingdoms, making them a little nicer to live in. He's transforming beasts, not always in a way that makes sense to his people. Sometimes the beasts marginalize them, fight against them, even defeat them. But each time that happens, God's final judgment that fully brings his kingdom comes a little bit closer. And you should be thankful that that's what God is doing in history. Because the obvious reality is that beast kingdoms are made up of beasts. We've seen this in the book of Daniel already, that the kings represent their people. When you see the king, you see the people, you see you and me before we're transformed. Before we're transformed, we are unclean. We don't enter this world loving God, loving our neighbor as ourself. We enter this world doing our share of devouring, crushing, and trampling anyone who gets in the way of what we want. We enter this world in danger of being judged. The need of every human being is transformation. To not simply be relocated from the beast kingdoms to the kingdom of God, but to be transformed so that we are now full images of God who belong in the kingdom of God and nowhere else. We need what God and only God can do for us. We need to become full images of God, people who truly reflect him. We need to become fully human. So why would you trust this God to transform you when he's willing to let you be harmed afterward? It's because to bring you into his kingdom, he had to plan for his own son, this one like a son of man, to be devoured, crushed, trampled, more than anyone else on the planet ever has been. Isaiah the prophet said it this way, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, crushed to take your punishment, judged by the Ancient of Days so that you would never have to be, trampled on so that you would be transformed. That's someone you can trust. When someone goes through all of that for you because you need them to go through all of that for you, you realize they only have good thoughts for you. They only have love for you. They have your best interests at heart. If you struggle to believe that, if you get angry and upset because this Jesus allows things into your life that you don't like, look at all that he went through. Realize he did not do that because he doesn't like you. He has much better plans for you than you've ever had for you. Jesus deserved to sit on a throne, deserved to rule on earth as he did in heaven. He deserved a world in which there were no beasts, no beast kings, no beast kingdoms, no beast peoples. He deserved a world in which you and I had no part, a world we forfeited by our own beastliness. But he let 
the beasts and the beast kingdoms live, even when they hurt his people, so that the human race would continue, so that one day you would be born, so that one day you could be transformed, so that you could be truly human just like him, so that one day in the future you and I will live with him in his kingdom, but also so that right now we will live like he does while we wait for his kingdom to come, so that we will give mercy to those who still live like beasts, so that we will work for justice for those who are oppressed by beasts, so that we will feed those who are hungry because the beasts have devoured their food and taken away everything else that they've ever had, so that we will shelter those who have been driven from their homes by beasts, so we will open our homes to those who are alone in a beast world, so that we'll speak truth to those who live in a distorted world of beast lies, and we will fight for those who can't defend themselves from beasts who would crush and trample them. In other words, if you're sitting back, if you're scared of this world, if you're apathetic, if you're living a comfortable life, you're missing the point. Living for the kingdom of God does not mean waiting around for it until it finally gets here. That's a beastly way to live. Being a transformed human being means living like the Son of God did right now. Living like a real human being in a beast world. It means that like Jesus, you offer yourself to be devoured, crushed, trampled for the sake of others so that they might see the difference between a beastly image and an image of God. So they might see that image of God and they might desire to know your God so that God himself might transform them. And it means that you do that with optimism, with great hope, because one day the God who shapes and changes all of history is going to judge all beasts. He's going to fully bring his kingdom. And on that day, if you've been transformed, you will be with him in his kingdom, which will be the only one that's left. And you'll be there with him forever in that forever world. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us hope, for giving us a future. Thank you for throwing yourself under the beasts of this world, under us, to pay for us so that we could be ransomed, rescued, redeemed, restored, forgiven, transformed, made just like you. Lord, fill us with the joy of what you've done so that we can barely contain it, so that it sends us back out into this world just like you came into this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.